One of the great privileges I've had in my life was the opportunity to serve at a Christian camp out in California for uh, two and a half summers when I was in college and seminary. I've shared some of those stories with you over the years. But uh, one of the real uh, treats of serving at this camp, is it was a two-week-long camp, so kids would come for two weeks. And uh, having that longer time frame allowed us to do some really special things with the kids that you don't normally get to do in just a normal you know, five-, six-day camp setting. Uh, one of the things that we got to do was take kids out on uh, backpack trips up into the Sierra Nevada mountain range, uh, way out in the backcountry, uh, miles away from civilization, from any other people. And uh, man, I tell you what, it, it's just amazing what God can do in your life spiritually when you're out on these uh, adventures out in the middle of nowhere, seeing the beauty of God's creation. But uh, I'll tell you something, there were many times where we would be out on these hikes. I mean, we would go for like, you know, five, ten miles a stretch looking for these backcountry, you know, beautiful lakes and scenes. And uh, there were times as you're hiking through the mountains with a group of 20, you know, 12, 13-year-old kids where you're uh, starting to question, you know, what am I doing here? Um, you know, your feet start to hurt, you start getting blisters, uh, your knees are aching, uh, the, the dirt and grime from the trail is, you know, just kind of seeping into your pores, and the sweat starts running down your eyes, stinging your eyes. You're carrying, you know, a heavy, you know, oftentimes 30-pound backpack full of pots and pans and food for everybody and water, and, you know, and pretty soon you start getting weighed down and, and burdened down, and then you got these, you know, young kids that are complaining and moaning and groaning, and pretty soon you forget about the scenery around you, and you're just thinking... Lord, what did I get myself into here? But I'll tell you something, friends. When we would arrive at the destination, when we would get to the top of the mountain and look out and see the spectacular views, the the beautiful glacial lakes or the, the mountain ranges out in the distance as far as the eye could see, suddenly, friends, all of the, the pain and heartache that went along in the midst of the climb was all worth it. You see, the, the, the view from the top changes everything. And, and I'll tell you something, friends, there's a spiritual principle in this for us as well this morning. Because as we began to see last week in the first chapter of the book of Ruth, the reality is, and this is no secret to any of us here, the reality is life is often full of trials and hardships and heartache. And there are going to be times in all of our lives where we're just like hiking through those mountains. You're slogging, you're, you're straining, you're pressing on, and the blisters are growing on your feet, and your back is sore, and your knees are aching, and, and the people around you are crying and complaining. And you start to question, God, what am I doing here? What, what are you doing in these circumstances of my life that are so hard right now? But you see, friends... God in his eternal vantage point. God has a plan and a purpose for everything that we go through in our lives. And sometimes God leads us through the trials to bring us to the mountaintops. And I'll tell you something, friends, one of the most powerful spiritual principles that that I've been blessed to try and apply to my life consistently. It's a principle that's found all throughout the book of Ruth. We're going to see it again today. It's a principle I want to encourage you with this morning. It's simply this. If you find yourself struggling with your attitude, you need to change your altitude. 
You need to stop viewing the circumstances of your life from your limited perspective and begin to look at the circumstances of your life from God's eternal perspective. If you're wrestling with your attitude, refocus on your altitude. Look at your life. Trust in God in His heavenly, sovereign perspective. And I tell you something, friends, that makes all the difference in the world. As I said a moment ago, this is one of the main themes that we see throughout the book of Ruth. If if you were with us last week in Ruth chapter 1, chapter 1, the story opens, and I mean, man, this this story, if all you had was chapter 1, you would walk away thinking, this story, this, this is like, this is a depressor, what a downer. Here this story starts out with with the land of Israel being uh, burdened with a famine. It was a period of famine where God's judgment had come upon the people of Israel. And and there was a man in the land of, of, uh, in the town of Bethlehem named Elimelech. And Elimelech, in the midst of this famine, decided that he was going to move his family out of God's promised land, out of the land of Israel to the land of Moab, 50 miles east of Israel. And so Elimelech took his family and they left Bethlehem. They went to the land of Moab, a a foreign land, a pagan land, a land of, of a pagan demonic god. And Elimelech set out thinking that this was just going to be a temporary sojourn. I want to go and get bread and feed my family. But what started out as a temporary sojourn turned into a 10-year stay. This family put roots down in Moab. Their sons married pagan women. They adopted the customs of the Moabites. And for that, God brought judgment on this family. Elimelech died. The two sons ended up dying. And now you've got a mother, Naomi, and her two pagan daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, and they're in this foreign land and they have no resources, they have no support. To be in this position in the ancient world as a woman was about to be in the most desperate state a person could be. And Naomi did what the only thing she could think of, she decided to return to her homeland, to go back to Bethlehem. And as we saw last week, in the midst of this crisis, her daughter-in-law Orpah decided to turn back. She went back to Moab, to the comforts of Moab, to the, to the comforts of her, her pagan lands. Naomi and Ruth, however, continued on to Bethlehem, to the promised land. Ruth This pagan Moabite pledged her faithfulness to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And not just to Naomi, but to the God of Naomi, to the God of Israel. And as we saw last week, Ruth said, Your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. And where you go, I will go. And so Ruth stepped out in faith and followed her mother-in-law back to Bethlehem. But they were still in a very desperate situation. Even in the promised land, to be, to be two women with no resources, with no husbands, they were in a very precarious situation. And yet, as we're going to see today, God, in His sovereign providential plan, was orchestrating all of these events. We're going to see today and in the coming weeks that the Lord truly is sovereign and kind. That God was going to turn Ruth's and Naomi's tragedy into a triumph. What a great message of hope for us when we go through the the trials in our own lives. Here in Ruth chapter 2, we're going to see 
God's sovereign faithfulness. We're going to see it, first of all, this morning in a field prepared. A field prepared. Here in our opening scene in verses 1 through 7, we begin to see the path by which God is going to turn Ruth and Naomi's tragedy into this triumph. And that path would lead right through a parcel of land. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2 this morning. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, friends, that's just a narrator's insert there, okay? Ruth, Naomi, they don't know anything about this Boaz guy quite yet. And so we see in verse 2 how the story continues. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, again, Ruth has no idea who that him is. She's just hoping she's going to find some some gracious, generous farmer out there who will allow her to glean, to find grain, pick grain in in his fields. And so Naomi said to Ruth, go, my daughter. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And, And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So here in this opening scene of chapter 2, we find that God had prepared a field, a field for Ruth, for her sustenance, for her and Naomi. Now, friends, if you'll remember from last week, when we left off in our story, Naomi and Ruth, These two women were in very different places emotionally and spiritually. If you'll recall from last week, we saw Ruth take this amazing step of faith, leaving her pagan lands, her family behind, to follow after her mother-in-law into a land where she had never been, a foreign land, the land of Israel, a land where, where Moabites weren't traditionally welcomed. But she stepped out in faith, believing that God would provide, trusting in the God of Israel, desiring to serve her mother-in-law. Naomi, on the other hand, we saw last week, Naomi was racked by frustration. Naomi was trapped in bitterness and despair and anger towards God. If you remember at the end of chapter 1, when Naomi and Ruth come walking into the Bethlehem, the women of Bethlehem see Naomi. Hey, look, isn't that Naomi? And Naomi says, no, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Here was this woman who was so bitter, so angry. She couldn't even acknowledge the welcome of her friends in Bethlehem. You know, and it's interesting when we see here in chapter 2 the fruit of these two women's hearts' attitudes Here in verse 2, we find Ruth acting in determination 
while Naomi is stuck in debilitation. Ruth is the one who takes the initiative to go and provide for the two of them. Ruth is the one who sets out seeking to glean and and provide food and sustenance for these two women. Naomi, all she can manage is simply two words, go daughter. She's so racked with grief and bitterness that she's just stuck. And friends, what was the difference here between these two ladies? Well, the difference here is that Ruth chose to walk by faith. Ruth was clinging to her hope in the God of Israel. Ruth didn't know what the future held, but she trusted in the one who held the future. And so she stepped out in faith, believing that God would make a way. So we see Ruth, she goes out to the fields to glean. And again, she doesn't know where she's going. She doesn't know what field she's going to. She doesn't know if she'll be received or if she'll be shunned and and chased away. She's just hoping that she might find favor in the eyes of of some foreman and in the eyes of some farmer who might just let her glean the edges of the field. Now, you might be thinking this morning, well, what is this gleaning stuff that, that you're talking about, Pastor Jason? Well, in the Old Testament law, God had provided a way of provision and sustenance for widows, for orphans, for for foreigners in the land. And it was called gleaning. In the book of Leviticus, for example, Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, God tells the Israelites, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. In other words, if you miss anything, leave it there. Okay, why? And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. You see, God said, leave a portion behind in the harvest to provide for the needs of those less fortunate, for the poor, for the widow, for the outsider, for those who can't provide for themselves, provide the gleanings of the field for them. And the reason God did this, friends, and wrote this into the law was, number one, he's a generous and faithful God. That's who he is by nature. But God also wanted the Israelites to never forget that they were once slaves in Egypt, that they were once outsiders who were mistreated and despised and not provided for. They were in the land of slavery for 400 years, and yet God faithfully delivered them. And brought them back to the promised land. And so God wanted the Israelites to never forget that they too had once been outsiders. And he had provided graciously for them. So now he called them to provide graciously for others. And so Ruth goes out to glean, hoping to find some food for her and Naomi. And I want you to notice in verses 3 and 4, this is great. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers... And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, that phrase in the Hebrew, she happened to come, actually in the the Hebrew, the literal reading says, her chance chanced upon. Her chance chanced upon. In other words, in English, we would say something like, wow, what are the odds? What a stroke of luck. She just happens to go to the field of Boaz, who just happens to be a relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. What are the odds? 
And then verse 4 starts out, And behold, Boaz came. All of a sudden, Boaz shows up. The word behold there in Hebrew literally means, friends, and wouldn't you know it? (laughs) Friends, understand, all right, are, are you catching the irony here? The author of Ruth wants us to see very clearly that chance had absolutely nothing to do with Ruth being in this particular field on this particular day at this particular moment. Instead, this was all a part of God's sovereign plan. God was orchestrating all these events, friends. See, we need to understand this morning that there are no chance occurrences with our sovereign God. Friends, do you know that? Do you believe that? There are no chance occurrences with our sovereign God. There are no lucky accidents in our lives. God orchestrates all the events of our lives. Proverbs 16.33, look at this verse. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Friends, what's a lot? It's an ancient game of dice. Solomon says the lot is cast into the lap. The die is rolled. But it's every decision is from the Lord. There's no chance, friends. God is sovereign. God is in control. He is orchestrating the events of history and the events of our lives. As the theologian R.C. Sproul once noted, there are no maverick molecules anywhere in the universe. God ordains and oversees everything in our lives. King David in Psalm 139, 16, he he describes it like this. He says, your eyes, Lord, saw my unformed substance, my unformed body. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Friends, that's biblical truth. God saw your unformed body in your mother's womb. God had every single one of your days written out in his book before one of them came to be. Don't talk to me about chance. Don't talk to me about luck. Don't talk to me about random happenstance. Our Lord is sovereign over our lives. He has a plan and purpose for our lives. And here's where this is good news this morning, friends. Why is this good news? Because when you find yourself in the midst of the famines in life, remember, where you are today is not a mistake. God hasn't misplaced you, and his ways with us are never arbitrary. God has a plan and purpose. And here in our opening scene, God's faithfulness to Ruth reminds us that there is always a field of grain at the end of our hunger and pain. God always provides for his people. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Isaiah 40, verse 31. It's a message from the prophet Isaiah to Israel as they were about to be exiled into the land of Babylon. And the prophet Isaiah says, but they who wait for the Lord... Those who trust in the Lord. As you're about to be carried off into a foreign land without a future, without hope, you think, trust in the Lord. Why? Because those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk 
and not be faint. Friends, those are promises of God for our lives when we trust in him. God says you shall, you shall, you shall. He doesn't say you might or, or maybe hope that God will provide or, or maybe by chance somehow this all work out. No, if you wait on the Lord in the midst of the trials of your life, God will lift you up on wings like eagles. You will run and you will not grow weary. You will walk and you will not grow faint. Why? Because our Lord is a faithful God. Our Lord is sovereign and kind. And we see this very clearly. Yeah, that's worthy of clapping for. Amen. We see this very clearly here in the opening scene of Ruth chapter 2. The second thing we see here in our passage this morning, not only was a field provided, but a friend was provided. Friends, God is so good to us. Here in our second scene this morning, we're going to find that God didn't just provide a field for Ruth, but he also provided a friend. Take a look at verses 8 through 16 this morning. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. What amazing grace here, friends. Amazing grace displayed by Boaz, but ultimately the amazing grace of God in providing a friend. See, friends, here in verses 8 through 16, we're reminded that our God is abounding in faithfulness. The Lord is sovereign and kind. And when we trust in him, even in the famines of our lives, he doesn't just provide for us sufficiently. He provides for us abundantly. And we see this today in that God didn't just provide a field in which Ruth could glean. He also provided a friend on which she could lean. God is so good. Take a look at Boaz here this morning. What a great example. What a great testament to a a man of faith. I want to highlight three characteristics of Boaz for us here this morning that we see in our passage. The first thing we see about Boaz is that he was a pious man. 
He was a man of God, a faithful, God-fearing man. We see this right away when Boaz sets out on the scene. The very first thing we see of Boaz, he shows up in verse 4. And what are the very first words he says in this passage? He speaks to the workers in the field a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you this morning. Those are the very first words we hear from Boaz saying to his workers, the Lord bless you. Friends, can you imagine if that was your work environment tomorrow morning? When you show up to work tomorrow and the very first thing that your boss says to you, may the Lord bless you today. I mean, what a great work environment. But what a great example for all of us tomorrow as we head off to work. That may not be your boss tomorrow, but why isn't it you? Why can't it be you? Why can't you speak a word of blessing to the lives of your coworkers? Why can't all of us follow Boaz's example and be a blessing to the people that we work with tomorrow morning? I think it's a great example for us. But there's a question implicit in our passage this morning, and that question is simply this. Boaz might have been a man of God, but at the end of the day, was he going to bother to care for Ruth? See, remember, Ruth was an outsider, She was from a foreign land. On top of that, she was a woman. And on top of that, she was a Moabite. Again, I mean, out of all the people in Israel, she was probably one of the least likely to receive favor from an Israelite. If you'll recall from last week, friends, God had forbidden the Israelites from having any association with the Moabites. In Genesis 23, God commanded the Israelites, I don't want a Moabite to enter the camp of Israel for 10 generations. That's about a 1,000 years. I don't want any Moabites in your presence. Why? Because they're pagan, they worship a demonic God, and I don't want that influence corrupting my people. So Ruth, friends, I mean, man, when she steps out in faith, she is really stepping out in faith because she has the deck stacked against her. But for Boaz, there's one reality that takes precedence over everything else about Ruth. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. Boaz says here in verse 11 and 12, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, friends... Boaz recognized in Ruth a sister in the faith. She may have been a Moabite by birth, but she was a child of God by belief. Boaz saw that. She may have been a refugee from a pagan land, but she had come to take refuge in the God of Israel. And so Boaz, as a true man of God, Boaz understood God's heart for outsiders. Boaz understood the the spirit of the gleaning law was to provide for the outsiders. And Boaz understood that God welcomes any outsider who comes to him by faith. Even the Moabite can receive forgiveness and acceptance in the arms of God. And so Boaz too welcomed Ruth into his field and into God's family. So he was a pious man. We also see that Boaz was a protector Boaz sought to protect Ruth right from the very beginning. He says, no, I don't want you going any other field. You glean in my field. And you stay here and you follow my women. And by the way, I've ordered my male workers. They're not to touch you. They're not to harass you. 
Daniel Block, in his commentary on the book of Ruth, he says, here we have the first anti-sexual harassment in the workplace policy recorded in the Bible. Okay, maybe in the whole ancient world. Friends, understand, God provided protection for Ruth because, again, he's a faithful, loving God. Remember, okay, this was Boaz's field, but we are still in the time of the judges here. Remember last week, the judges, we talked about that 200-year period where Ruth takes place, where there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes? Man, for a woman like Ruth, an outsider, a widow, to go out and glean in the field, she was risking a lot. But Boaz says, no, you are safe in my field. And I'm going to assure that you are safe in my field. And he welcomed her an outsider, and he protected her. We see thirdly that Boaz was a provider for Ruth. Boaz goes far beyond what was required by the law. He, he doesn't just allow Ruth to glean in his fields. He says, come and sit down at my dinner table tonight. And I'm going to serve you myself. And I'm going to serve you with so much food, you're going to have leftovers at the end of the day. He just abounds this generous love upon Ruth, providing greater than she would have ever hoped for, greater than she could have ever imagined. And friends, when I thought about Boaz this week, I can't tell you I can't, how much I kept coming back to Boaz pointing us to a picture of Jesus Christ. I mean, what a picture of Jesus Christ that we see here in Boaz a provider, a protector, a person who welcomes the outsiders. Friends, God wants us to see very clearly not only who Boaz was, but who the God of Boaz was, our faithful God, the friend of outsiders. This week I kept thinking about that great hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. The lyrics of that great hymn, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and grief to bear. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Blessed Savior, thou hast promised. Thou wilt all our burdens bear. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Friends, this is God's amazing grace. We see in Boaz this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you this morning, maybe you're here today and you're looking for hope, you're seeking truth, you're, you're wondering if all of this Christianity stuff is true. I, I'm just going to ask you point blank, have you come to take refuge under the Lord of Israel? Have you sought out his protection and his provision? Do you know the God who embraces outsiders? You see, if you're looking for that welcome that Ruth received Put your hope and trust in the God of Israel, the Lord who is sovereign and kind. Because just like Boaz welcomed Ruth into his family, so too will Jesus Christ welcome you with open arms. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, we read that to all who received him, Jesus, to those who believed in Jesus' name, he gives the right to be called children of God. See, friends, our God welcomes outsiders. 
Aren't you thankful for that amazing grace? Every single one of us here this morning who's walking with Jesus today was once an outsider. But God, in his amazing grace, brought us into his family. Now, friends, for those of us who have experienced the refuge of the Lord, I want to share just a, a quick word of encouragement for you. See, what an example we have in Boaz. And I want you to think about this. Who in your life today needs a man or woman of faith to reach out and embrace them with the love of the Lord? I want you to think about the people in your life this morning. Who's gleaning in the fields of your life? Watching, observing, wondering if they too might experience the Lord's welcome. Who do you know who might be just as shocked as Ruth to be invited to the Lord's table? See, friends, our world today is full of outsiders just waiting for their Boaz to point them to Jesus Christ. Who's the Ruth in your life? Who will you be Boaz for? A protector, a provider, one who welcomes the outsider into the family of God. They're out there, friends. They're waiting. What an opportunity we have. Thirdly, this morning, we see God's sovereign kindness in the reality of a faith propped up. Let's read verses 17 through 23. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. You might be thinking, well, what does that mean? An ephah of barley, friends, was the equivalent in our measurements of six gallons of grain. In one day, she reaped six gallons of grain because of Boaz's kindness. That was enough grain for her to feed herself and Naomi for several weeks. God provided bountifully for her. We go on in verse 18, and she took it and went up to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, the name, the man's name with whom she had worked today is Boaz. Now we see the the wheels start turning in Naomi's mind here, right? Naomi's thinking, Boaz, he's a distant relative of Elimelech. Boaz, he might be that, that redeemer for us. He might be that provider, that family kinsman redeemer. There's a chance here. See, see, Ruth, she's thinking grain. Naomi's already thinking grandkids. (laughs) Naomi's thinking, man, the Lord is doing something here. And look at how Naomi's attitude begins to change. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. All of a sudden, this woman trapped in bitterness and frustration and despair is now saying, Praise the Lord. May the Lord be blessed. He hasn't forsaken either the living or the dead. She's beginning to see the faithfulness of God. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative. He's one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, to her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with uh, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Friends, here we see 
Isn't it amazing what a change of altitude can do for one's attitude? Here at the end of chapter 2, Naomi is finally beginning to recognize the gracious hand of God at work in their lives. In his provision of food, his protection over Ruth, the possibility of a kinsman redeemer, someone who might ultimately marry Ruth and provide grandchildren to keep the family line going. Here, Naomi begins to recognize God's grace, his grace at work. And friends, when we recognize God's grace at work in our lives, that changes everything. It's like the the Puritan minister Thomas Watson once said, he says, grace dissolves and liquefies the soul, causing a spiritual thaw. Friends, this is what was happening to Naomi. Her bitterness, her frustration, her hardened heart towards God. Suddenly she begins to see God's grace at work and all of that begins to thaw. We see her frustration turning into faith. We see a woman who's gone from bitter now to better. We see a life that was once fogged in by clouds of despair. Suddenly, the light of divine providence is shining through. Now, friends, before I get too far on this point, I want to add just a quick word of caution for us this morning. See, we need to guard our theology here because it's tempting for us to look at Naomi's story or at our own life experiences and think that it's God's intervention in our circumstances that gives us reason to rejoice. Lord, I've been looking for that job and, and you finally provided, Lord, you're faithful. Or Lord, we've been, we've been trying to have a child for so long and haven't been able to get pregnant and now I'm, I'm getting pregnant. Lord, you're so good to us. Or, or you've been wrestling in your marriage, struggling in your marriage and all of a sudden that spouse returns and seeks reconciliation and suddenly you begin to rejoice. But friends, of course our hearts will rejoice when times are good. But what we need to remember this morning, make no mistake, God is no less faithful even when we don't see his intervention. See, you've got to believe that, friends. He was no less faithful to Naomi the day before Ruth chanced upon Boaz. He was no less faithful the day her husband died in Moab. He was no less faithful 10 years earlier when he brought famine upon Israel. You see, friends, understand while our circumstances may change, God never does. He is always faithful. And so we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of tying our view of God and our joy in him to the circumstances of our lives. Oh my, how the enemy loves to use the trials in our lives to get us to despair or to believe that God is not sovereign and kind. Oh, if Jesus really loved you, you wouldn't be struggling with unemployment right now. If Jesus really loved you, you you wouldn't be wrestling with infertility. If God was really faithful, your marriage wouldn't be on the rocks right now. And the enemy lies to us like that to get us to disbelieve in the sovereignty and faithfulness and love of God. But friends, the Lord is always sovereign and kind. He's sovereign and kind in our famines and in our fullness. And this is why the Apostle Paul declares in Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice always. Friends, how can Paul say such a thing? Well, when you know who God is, you can rejoice in the triumphs and the trials. 
because you understand that he is always faithful and his plans for us are always good. Romans 8, 28, the apostle Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So what do we do about that, friends? We rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Why? Because God is working for his eternal plans and purposes for his sovereign good in all the circumstances of our lives. Now, friends, I want to invite you to join us the next two weeks. They're going to be awesome. If you think the book of Ruth has been good so far, don't miss the next two weeks. You see, we've just begun to see a glimpse of all that God has in store for Ruth and Naomi. The story's just going to get better. Next week, we're going to be treated to a tale of intrigue, scheming, romance. But most significantly, we're going to see God's providential hand at work, orchestrating the events of history to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. Man, I'm telling you, this is a great story. The Lord is sovereign and kind. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing story, this true story of your sovereign goodness and faithfulness and kindness at work in your people's lives. Lord, I pray that as we look at your plans and purposes in the lives of Ruth and Naomi, that we would be encouraged this morning, Lord. That no matter what we might be going through, God, if we're struggling with our attitude, help us to change our altitude and trust in your sovereign kindness and believe that you are good no matter our circumstances. Lord, especially this week at Thanksgiving time, may we rejoice in you always, knowing that you are a faithful God. We thank you, Jesus. We praise your name. Amen. Friends, would you please stand and join us for our closing song this morning?